All righty, so Netflix and Google have paid $7 million for 30 seconds of your attention. $7 million for 30 seconds of your, you must be pretty important, right? Other companies have paid a lot of money too for your attention because they know that your attention is very valuable. And they know the principle that a lot of us have come to know in our life, that this principle right here, whatever has your attention has you. Whatever has your attention has you. So if somebody can get your attention, they have you. And that is really, really important to know about yourself. It's really, really important for me to know about myself. Whatever has my attention has me, right? So this is really, really important. So here's the things that I want to do in our time together. I want to talk about three things with you. One, what is it that competes with our attention, right? There are things that compete with our attention. There are, there are other things that are really worthy of our attention. There's things that are not worthy or unworthy of your attention and my attention. They just are. Our culture says it's worthy, but it's really not worthy of our attention. And then I want to give you some helpful suggestions on what you can do to live the kind of life that God wants you to live in some very practical ways where you can incorporate some of this stuff that really deal with our culture really specifically. So that's what we're gonna talk about. I wanna brag on Pastor Jonathan. He's done a great job setting this up in this Knock Off God series. I wanna say hello to my folks online and those at Oak Ridge. It is great to be with you. And uh, he has done a, a fantastic job setting this up. So there are four things, if you're like me, that get your attention all the time, right? The first one is discomfort. If you're in pain, you can't really think about anything else. You guys know, I think I told you the story about my back surgery a couple years ago. When I was going through that, I, I was in so much pain, it was hard for me to even think about anything else. Some of you have been through a divorce, and when you went through it, it was so hard for you to even think about anything else, right? It was really, really difficult. So discomfort is very attention-getting, and it can steal our attention from other things in our life. Another one is distractions. There are distractions all the time. Some of you will be distracted three or four times as you're sitting here for just a little while by somebody on your phone wanting your attention or something or spam or email or something. So there's distractions everywhere we go around us, right? Then there are demands. There are demands in your life. There are demands in my life. When your brakes go bad, guess what you do? You get the car, take them to the shop, unless you know how to fix that stuff yourself. But you got to stop what you're doing and you got to go get it fixed. If your child comes to you this afternoon and says, hey, mom, dad, I have a homework assignment due tomorrow, right? That's never happened in your house before, right? <laughs> yes. All of a sudden, what? What's happening? Why didn't you tell me? Let's go to Walmart. You know, that kind of thing. It all happens right there. The, we have a new, I, I want to introduce you to a new member of our family. This is Elvis. So Elvis is our little new French bulldog, and he is, he has stolen our hearts. Uh, we are just, you know, we are just a mess because we just love him so much. And, um, but Elvis can be demanding because he likes to sleep, eat, and poop just like we do. So it doesn't matter what you're doing in our house. The moment Elvis shows signs of having to go to the bathroom, Elvis needs to leave the building right there, right? So we got to stop what we're doing. I don't care what kind of Zoom call, phone call, what meaningful conversation you're having with your family. Elvis has got to go potty. We got to all get up. We got to figure this out. It's demanding, right? There are demands 
on our attention. And finally, there's the fourth thing that I like to call the desire to acquire. And this is what we're going to be focusing our time today. It's this desire to acquire. I don't know about you, but I like stuff. I like buying stuff. I like looking at stuff. I like the new model and the latest version of stuff. Some of you are probably elbowing each other right now going, I think you do too, right? You like stuff. We like stuff. And part of life demands that we have certain things in our life. But sometimes that desire to acquire goes overboard. It goes into this destination where we're like, we can't even get it under control. Some of my, my, my favorite phrase on Amazon is this. It's, you might also like. And I'm like, I'm like that is so sweet of them to curate a list of things <laughs> that I would like. That is so nice of them. Because I love Amazon, I love buying stuff, I love buying stuff for my family, I love, and, but, but sometimes if you're like me, you notice this desire to acquire is kind of out of control. It's like, I mean, the bank account's looking rough right now, we probably, maybe we overspent, and you're always trying to go, hey, have we spent too much money? We love, we love our stuff so much, we have storage facilities to put stuff in. I've also noticed this, that pictures marry hoarders. Have y'all felt this in your, your marriage? Somebody who likes to pitch stuff out and take it to goodwill marries somebody who likes to hold on to stuff. Oh, we can't get rid of that stuff? No, we're going to use that. We haven't used it in 11 years, but we're going to use that at some point, right? That's just the way that it is. This desire to acquire can get out of control. Webster calls it this. He calls it something called materialism, okay? If this desire to acquire, this knockoff God that uh, is so prevalent in our culture. If it gets out of control, here's what our lifestyle looks like. A lifestyle that values wealth, possessions, and popularity driven by insecurity. A lifestyle that values wealth, possessions, and popularity driven by insecurity. Have you ever felt that desire? We need wealth. I need to be more popular. I need to more have more stuff. I think it's driven by two, two pieces of insecurity. One is I don't have enough. And some of us grew up in a home where you didn't have enough. And so anytime you get some stuff, it makes you feel better because you're like, we grew up with nothing. And so I gotta get some stuff because I don't ever wanna be afraid that I'm not gonna have stuff. So I gotta go get some stuff. And that's the scarcity mentality that you're always, is God gonna provide? Am I gonna have enough? That's, you know, that's what that is. But the other insecurity that I think that we deal with is <clears throat> I'm not enough. I'm not enough. And because I'm not enough, I don't think I am enough. I'm going to go buy some stuff to impress people that have other stuff too, so that hopefully I can feel like I am enough. And I think both of those are wrong. And I think we need to be honest with God to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. God, is my lifestyle out of whack here? Am I trying to soothe some weird insecurity by just buying more stuff and that kind of thing? I just think that's important for us to look at. Now, here's what I know. The apostle John, John was a best friend of Jesus. The apostle John wrote the book of John. He also wrote first, second, third John about 56, uh, uh, 50 or 60 years after Jesus died and rose from the grave, the apostle John wrote this book. And you would think that John was reading the current Twitter feed about 20 minutes ago 
when I get ready to read you what he wrote. So check this out. John writes this in our culture, and he just kind of gives us a heads up of, hey, here's the kind of culture you guys are living in. I don't want you to be surprised. I want you to be aware of the value system that you all, us, that we live in, and 2,000 years ago of the people that he saw. Don't love the world's ways. And by the way, I love Eugene Peterson's version of this. Don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world, what's that word? squeezes out love for the Father. It squeezes out love for the Father. Next slide here. Practically everything that goes on in the world. Now, listen, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, and wanting to appear important has nothing to do with the Father. And I want to stop right here just for a second, and I want to say this. Yeah, and it's like, okay, Eric, is he saying, you know, we should never want good things for our life. We should never want uh, more, um, we shouldn't have ambition about our life and want to, you know, accomplish something. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. And that's not what John's saying. I think what John is saying is don't live a self-centered life where everything you think about getting for your life, you only spend on you. That's what he's saying. He said, all that means you are being influenced by the culture you live in and not by Jesus. So let, let's, let's go on to, to the next one. It just isolates you. If, if everything you want is all about you, just to get more, just to have more, just to be more, it just isolates you from your father and the world and all of its, oh, this is so good. The world and all of its wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. Set for eternity. Now, sometimes I read the Bible, and I've been reading it for a long time. Sometimes I read the Bible and I go, I know what God said, but what did he mean by what he said? Have you ever been in a conversation where you said something and somebody said, well, you said, and you're like, well, <laughs> that's not what I meant by what I said. I said, you know, that kind of thing. Well, John here and in other places throughout the New Testament, God tells us to love the world. And now, now God tells us don't love the world. Love the world, don't love the world. What is it? I think God tells us, I want you to love the world. I want you to love the people of the world. Love each other as I have loved you. Jesus told us that. But I think John is telling us, I do not want you to love the world's value system that it's going to try to give you and bait you to come live in. And he's going to, and he says, the world's value system is baiting you to come do what it's thing. And then it's going to make fun of you once you fall. That's how the world's value system works. So John is saying, I want you to be very, very aware. I want you to be shrewd. Do not be fooled. You live in a value system that is very, very broken and anti-God. So what would Jesus have us do? I mean, if Jesus understands that we live in a culture that is very against him, but yet we wanna establish a life. We wanna fulfill God's purpose for our life. Some of us want a family. Some of us want to go to college. Some of us want some things out of life and all these things. What would Jesus tell us to do? How would he tell us how to live if we are born into a culture that rejects God and doesn't think highly of God's value system and instead baits you to live a value system that can destroy you, what would Jesus say? Well, we are given some writings by the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul was a uh, missionary 
And he was, uh, he persecuted the church young in his life. And then as he, he became a church planter, when God changed his life, he actually stood when, um, when one of the early apostles, Stephen, was testifying to the grace of Jesus Christ and what Christ had done. Paul actually stood and held the jackets of those who were stoning Stephen to death. And then Paul gets knocked off his horse on the way to Damascus after he is going to torture some Christians, and he becomes one. And not just that, God says, you're not just going to become one. I'm going to make you the leader of the whole thing. Be careful how anti-God you become. God likes to find those people, right? And so the apostle Paul becomes a missionary. And he writes a letter to the church in Ephesus. And on Paul's second missionary journey, he preaches in the city of Ephesus. And then after he leaves, Apollos becomes a teacher there. And he works with Priscilla and Aquila. And uh, on Paul's third missionary journey, he comes back through Ephesus. And he, uh, he preaches there for two to three years. Ephesus is in, a, is in a place, if you were to look at it on the map, it's in the western tip of Turkey, present day. If you were looking at a map and you saw Greece... Look to the right across the Aegean Sea, and there's the port city of Ephesus. It was about 300,000 people. Ephesus was built around the goddess and idol worship of the temple of Artemis. Okay? There was a belief in the city of Ephesus that a meteor hit near the city uh, from, from outer space, and a meteor hit near the city, and people began to believe that this was a uh, of the gods, right? So Artemis, the fertility goddess, became really, really popular in Ephesus. And of course, all the, uh, all the city, it was very popular that you, we worship Artemis. That's just what we do. There was a big temple to Artemis in the middle of the city, had a hundred huge pillars all the way around it. And not just that, but it had lots of people who sold trinkets and had businesses set up all around the temple of Artemis. So just like if you were to go to Washington, D.C. Or, or something like that, you would walk outside the museum or wherever you were. And you know how they have souvenir shops and you buy little trinkets of, you know, whatever the case may be. And you try to keep your kids away from them because it's just a waste of money, right? That kind of thing. Well, imagine, imagine being in Ephesus around the huge temple to Artemis, uh, the idol worship that that city worshipped. And then imagine all the people who ran businesses, shops, uh, all around the temple. Okay, So when, when you and I would go up to those shops and we would buy trinkets that supported the goddess of Artemis, it fueled the local economy. And it helped uh, bring in money for the temple, and that helped spread money around to other places, and it fueled the idol worship of the city. So here comes the Apostle Paul, who is now a, a very bold and strong believer in Jesus. He comes to Ephesus, and he starts saying, hey, Ephesians, put your faith in Jesus. He died, and he rose again from the grave. Put your faith in him. And all of a sudden, after a little bit, people began putting their faith in Jesus. And lots of people began putting their faith in Jesus. And then this guy, his name is Demetrius. He owned a shop around the city or around the temple of Artemis. And he got really upset because he noticed something. All these new Christians weren't buying their trinkets anymore. 
They weren't supporting the businesses around the temple anymore. They, weren't buying, they, they were actually bringing all their stuff that they bought to the goddess of Artemis and burning it at the apostles' feet. So we don't need this anymore. Jesus is all we need. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people found out about this. And the local economy started tanking around the city, around the goddess of Artemis. And people got really angry because nobody was buying their trinkets anymore at their souvenir shops, according to this, uh, this false god. And they drove Paul and, and his companions into the theater there. And they were rioting against them. And long live Artemis. They were shouting. The Bible says they shouted for two hours straight and didn't let up at Paul and his companions because so many people were coming to Jesus. And the authorities had to come in and break up the crowd. They're like, they're gonna kill these guys. We, we gotta stop. And this is what Paul said to them. He goes, listen, guys, I'm writing to a culture and, 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 and here's the thing that I want you to understand, okay? Ephesians 5, here we go. I want you to imitate God. Stop imitating Artemis. It's a dead religion. I want you to imitate God. Therefore, in everything you do. Now, I know some of you grew up in this idol worship and you kind of learned some ways on, on, on the weekends or whenever your parents brought you to, for this idol worship, but I want you to forget all that because there's a new thing now. And I want you to imitate God, therefore, in everything you do because you are his dear children. You are no longer part of a belief system. You're part of a spiritual family. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. You're part of the big C church across the globe, part of God's family, but you're also being here at the Summit Church. You're part of a local family, which is good for all of us and healthy, and that's what God wants out of our lives. He says, you're, you are dear children. You're not, a, you're not just part of a belief system anymore. You're part of God's family. Live a life filled with love, not self-centeredness, not only doing things for yourself, live a life filled with love following whose example? Oh, the guy who died and rose from the grave. Remember the kind of life that he, he lived? Follow his example. If you're ever confused, if you're ever dizzy, if you're ever disoriented and you ever lose track, just go back and ask yourself the question, hey, what did Jesus do while he was living? How can I follow that example? And next. He loved us, Jesus loved us, and he offered himself as a, as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Here's, here was Paul's challenge. I want you to let all that stuff go, and it's only Jesus. If you're ever confused, follow his example. Imitate God who loves you. It was, it was very common for Paul to write to these cities as he would plant churches. And he would say, follow me as I follow Christ. I know you don't know what you're doing. I know all this is new. I know you're kind of new at this. And I know you have a lot of questions. So he would go, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm not perfect, but I'm trying. And, uh, and so I want you to just follow me as I follow Christ. And here's the, here's the statement. Here's my big idea that I want you to take away that I feel like God wants us to wrestle with today. And then knock off God. Aspire to live higher than your desire to acquire. And I'm on fire. <laughs> I want you to aspire to live higher than your desire to acquire. 
That's what Paul was saying. He says, I want you to imitate God. I want you to live differently. Let's, let's change things around. And for, for many of us, the knockoff God we've been living up to is this desire to acquire and we've been feeding it. I want to challenge you right now. I want, I want to challenge you to prioritize relationships over stuff. Prioritize relationships over stuff because if we don't, if we don't live higher, y'all, you guys are my friends. I care about you. We're going to live a small life. That if, if, if this desire to acquire feeds us and we don't get it under control, it's going to cause us to live a very, very, very small life and below the standard that we're going to want. God says, I want you to imitate God. I want you to follow the example of Christ. And so I want to give you three things that you can do. If you ever want to take notes, now's the time. I want to give you three action steps, three tactical suggestions that you can take. Hey, how do I aspire to live higher? What does that actually mean? I want to give you three ways to incorporate or to, to do what I'm asking you to do. Number one, I want you to go first, okay? I want you to go first, and this is what I mean by that. Most of us in our life, in our natural state, we go, if she will, I will. If she'll go first, then I'll go next. If he will, then I will. If, if she'll love me first, then I'll love her back. If she'll forgive me first, then I'll forgive her back. If he'll respect me first, I'll respect him back. That's our normal way of living, right? God wants you to learn how to go first in your life. The Bible actually says we love because he what? First loved us. We love because he first loved us. God took the initiative to love you first. He wants you to take the initiative to love other people first. Give people respect before they give it to you. Give people kindness before they give it to you. Give people grace before they give it to you. Give people, this is great marriage advice, by the way. Give people love, give your spouse love before they give it to you. And isn't it interesting how God uses that and brings people together? Do you know what we call people who demand attention? Children. Let's not be children. Let's grow up a little bit. And there's going to be people in your life where you're going to feel like they owe you something. That's, that's all of us. And there's people in my life that feel like I owe them something. Or there's people in my life, I feel like they owe me. You're the same way. They've hurt you. They've done something to you. Something's not right. There's a relationship in your past that's been off and it's been off for a while. The loop never got closed. I want to challenge you to go first, to go first. What's the relationship that has just, God seems to kind of keep it on your mind and it doesn't seem to go away. And you feel like in some small way, I could just extend an olive branch to go first. I don't have to say everything, but in some small way, I can just start the process of going first. Don't wait for people to treat you in a certain way before you choose to treat them in a certain way. That's called reactionary living, and that is not how Jesus designed us to live. He wants us to go first. The second thing I want to challenge you to do is I want you to learn how to use your influence, excuse me, use your affluence to influence. I want you to learn how to use your affluence 
to influence. Now, this is what Jesus did, okay? When God thought of, hey, what can I do to redeem people and save people from their sin? Let me see what I got on clearance that I can send down there to fix this situation. That's not what he did. He goes, I'm gonna send the third person, or excuse me, the second person of the Trinity to go down and solve this problem out of my great riches, graces, God's riches at Christ's expense. He says, I'm going to send Jesus to go fix this problem of the greatest riches that I have to go fix this sin problem. And I think God wants to tell us, I want you to figure out how to use your affluence to influence people in a positive way. Y'all, there's a reason that miser and miserable are in the same word. a reason. Some of us have never learned the discipline to recognize everything we have as God's and how to use our resources as little or as much as you think you have, how to influence others in a positive way with it. Here's what I know about godly people. This is what I've learned throughout my life. Godly people go from working for money to making their money work for them. Now, what am I not saying? I'm not saying that every Christian is gonna make so much money that they never have to worry about making money again. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying as you follow Jesus, when you make a decision to follow Jesus, everything about you and becoming like Jesus doesn't happen in that instant. God gives you his Holy Spirit. You are forgiven of all your past, future, and present sin. All that's taken care of but you are not like Jesus in every area of your life yet. That takes time. It takes the Holy Spirit time to do that in your life. And one of the areas of of our life is how we handle money that's typically the last thing we trust God with because we have this desire to acquire this knockoff God that we worship and we're unwilling to give it back to God. And so what God wants you to do is he wants you to learn how to a perspective shift, a perspective change in your mind to go, hey, listen, everything I have is of God's. So how do I use my affluence to influence people? That is the biggest thing that God wants you to learn how to do. Let me ask you a question. Who else in your life does your affluence affect or make better than you? You don't have to answer the question. I just want you to think about that. And if you're the only one, make a note of that, okay? I wanna challenge you. For some of you, this is brand new information. You're like, whoa, this is the first time I'm hearing this. Others of you, you've heard this for years. I wanna challenge you, figure out, God, everything I have is yours. Now, how do I take my affluence and all the stuff that you've given me and use it to create positive influence in my world. That is the way that mature Christ followers think. They give it to their local church. They give it to charities. They give it to people. They help. When God so loved the world that he what? Gave. Loving and giving go together, right? If you have a giving problem, you probably have a loving problem. If you have a giving problem, you probably don't feel loved. And you need to talk to God about that because he's already demonstrated how much he loves you. Now it's a trust issue, okay? So use your affluence to influence. The third thing I wanna challenge you to do, okay, 
This, this third thing I'm going to tell you to do, okay, if you can learn how to do this, your happiness in life will dramatically change if you can learn how to do what I'm getting ready to tell you, okay? So when I feel pressure, I'll learn how to problem solve. When I feel pressure, I will learn how to problem solve. Now, there are things that God did for us that make, make it so game-changing that we are, we are more, never more like God than we are loving then when we're giving and then we're problem solving. If you're in leadership anywhere, this is for you. If you have a family, if you have children, if you're in college, or if you're whatever, if you're gonna experience problems, right? I, I will too. Listen, Jesus came, it's called the atonement. When Jesus came, it's called the atonement. You know what atonement means? At one meant, he brought God and mankind together, and he solved a problem. The pr- some of the challenges that are going on in your life and my life right now are because we are creating more problems than we are solving. And that's a whole nother conversation. You are never more like Jesus than when you are going, how can I solve this problem? So students, I want you to pay attention to me real quick. If you're a student, I want you to look up here real quick, and then you can go back to whatever. So um, if you're listening, I want next time you hear your parents having a very intense conversation, walk up to your parents and just ask them this question. Hey, mom, dad, what's the problem we're trying to solve? And then walk out of the room. <laughs> I, want to, I want to teach you to do three things real quick, okay? I want you to learn how to define a problem. Y'all, if we don't learn how to do this, we're gonna create more problems in our life. And you and I don't have enough energy to solve all those problems. Learn how to define a problem. What's the problem we're trying to solve right now? The second thing I want you to learn how to do is I want you to learn how to de-escalate problems in your life. Problems in themselves bring a lot of emotional energy and sometimes chaos and can you believe and I can't believe that happened and what are we gonna do and all that nonsense, right? Okay, let that burn off because when, when emotions are high, logical thinking is low. So I want you to learn how to think through in such a way where you're able to de-escalate problems because you're able to remain in the games logically and think through what is going on and how do I solve this? And how do I keep my emotions from lying to me and leading me down the dark path, okay? The third thing I want you to learn how to do and I, is I want you to learn how to demonstrate a solution in your life. I want you to learn how to demonstrate solutions in your life. I want you to learn how to be a model for other people who oftentimes feel clueless and they're hurting and they don't have anybody who is guiding them or helping them. Okay. About five or six years ago, Krisha and I, uh, my wife, we took a trip to Italy and it was beautiful. We went to Florence and just had such a wonderful time. Spent the whole week there. And, you know, sometimes when you're traveling around the world, you never know if you're going to be back there again. So you kind of hoop it up while you're there. Right. So we decided to rent a car and drive from Florence south down to Siena and just see the city and enjoy whatever was on the way. And, and so as I was leaving Florence in our little Fiat that we rented, 
in our little paper map that they gave us, um, we, uh, it, I felt very comfortable because I was following people on the roads. And I, now I didn't know what the road signs meant, but I was following other people on the roads out of Florence. So I felt pretty good. I wasn't really stressed, I, you know, that kind of thing. I've driven in other countries before. So that's kind of, you know, that, I've done that before. anyway. So, you know, we're driving, I'm following cars. I've, I'm feeling confident. I'm feeling great. We're having a nice fun time. All of a sudden I realized after a little while that there's nobody in front of me anymore. And it's suddenly becoming very apparent that if I come up to an intersection, I don't know what the signs mean. So now I'm starting to feel a little stressed because I don't have a model in front of me. There's nobody driving in front of me that I can follow. So Krisha and I get up to a uh, traffic circle and we're driving through and, and she's looking at the map and I'm entering the traffic circle and I'm like, hey babe, which way do I need to go? She's like, hold on, I'm, I'm looking at the map. And I'm like, babe, I am like, I'm, in, I'm leading the pack right now. I'm in front. I've got four cars behind me wanting me to go faster and I don't really know where to go. So can you kind of speed that up just a little bit as you're looking at that map? She's like, Eric, I don't, I don't know where to go. Just hold on. I said, all right, well, let's just go around the traffic circle. You know, let's just, you know, let's just, let's, let's just, let's just make the loop. I said, babe, listen, I, I know you're trying, but I really need to know that exit because I got people behind me. I've got nobody in front of me. I don't know where I'm going. She said, will you just be quiet for a minute while I'm trying to figure, this has never happened in your car, uh, by the way. Uh, will you just be quiet for a minute? I'm trying to figure out where to go. I'm like, babe, I'm gonna have to go through this thing twice. We're going through the traffic circle twice now. Here we go, we're now we're going around. And so there's people behind me now going, what are these crazy Americans? I, I, you know, what are they doing? So I'm like, now third time, we're going through the third time, I'm seeing the same things I just saw. And I'm like, now I'm getting really impatient because I'm by nature, I'm a little impatient anyway. I'm like, baby, I really need to know what's going on. She's like, Eric, I told you, I'm trying to figure out where this road's gonna lead. And I said, baby, here's, do, am I supposed to? No, I, no, I'm going third time around. Here, here's the traffic circle. Fourth time around, she goes, all right, listen, when we get back around, take this right. And I'm like, finally, I feel like an idiot going through this thing four times anyway. And we had a wonderful time. We drove down to Siena and <clears throat> experienced the day. About four weeks later, um, I, I thought it would be kind of cool to order her something online that kind of matched the trip that we had just been on. And it was really cool. It's something we had saw. And I was like, oh, would that be kind of cool to have this, um, you know, show up at the house for her as a gift. And so the FedEx person pulled up in our driveway and I was so excited to give her this gift. And uh, the FedEx person got out. She handed me this envelope. I'm like, I don't remember this being you know, kind of an envelope size, but anyway, let's just open it up. Let's just see, maybe it was. So I opened the envelope and uh, Avis in Italy had sent me a $400 fine for going through their traffic circle four times. <laughs> Guys, here's what I learned from that experience. <laughs> Don't, well, there's a lot of things I learned from that experience. A lot of us are driving and nobody's in front of us and we don't know who to follow. We're driving down roads in our lives where 
we don't know what a healthy marriage looks like, so we're just kind of winging it. We're, we don't know how to handle our money, so we're just kind of, we're getting tense and frustrated and stressed out, and we, we don't know how to raise our children, and so we're like, ah, I've never been down this road before. We, we don't have models that we can follow, and it's creating stress, and some of us would love to pay $400 to fix this problem that quick. But some of you have been driving for a while without a model and you are stressed and you are tired because you don't know if you're going the right way, you don't know if you're doing it right, and you're frustrated. And the example is Christ. And some of you are in a situation in your life where you need a model. You do. In some area of your life, you need a model. And you're disoriented, you're frustrated, and it's causing stress in other areas of your life. For some of you, you need to be a model. You need to be somebody for other people to look at and go, hey, I'm not perfect, but I'm trying. And you know what, if you need some wisdom and some experience and some knowledge, I've got some. I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not perfect, but I can help. That's what I would wanna challenge you to do today. Some of you need to go first right now in a relationship that's dangling. Some of you need to learn the dis discipline of how do I use my affluence to influence this world in a positive way. And some of you desperately need to learn how to problem solve so that you don't create more problems in your life and you can love and help other people by being a problem solver. Because that is what Jesus did for us. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I wanna thank you for my friends <clears throat> that are in this room, watching online at Oak Ridge, and Lord, so many times we have felt like we are driving down a road without a model, without an example. And we have felt lost, we have felt confused, we have felt angry, we have felt frustrated, things have happened that we just wish we could course correct and, and we are where we are. And Jesus, what I pray for is that all the knockoff gods that we've been chasing up to today, that they would just go away and that our attention would be centered upon you and what you have done for us. And we love you. In Jesus' name we pray.